Good morning, everyone, and happy Lord's Day before Labor Day. A little bit of history. This is just out of history.com. Labor Day pays tribute to the contributions and achievements of American workers. It was created by the labor movement in the late 19th century and became a federal holiday in 1894. Labor Day also symbolizes the end of summer for many Americans and is celebrated with parties, parades, and athletic events. And to me as a Christian, the idea of Labor Day just brings up to our minds um, what the Bible has to say about labor, about work. Labor Day is a good thing. I'm glad we have Labor Day as a holiday in our country, but turns out the Bible has a lot to say on the subject of work, of labor, and it turns out that uh, work is a creation mandate. Uh, it's something that has existed for mankind since the very beginning, and we're going to unfold that. We'll look at that a little bit more closely. But like other areas of biblical morality, work the work ethic, Christian work ethic, is also under attack. It's being attacked, it's being undermined and neglected in our culture. There are unbiblical attitudes about work in our culture, like these uh, sayings that are pretty common. I just came up with these off the top of my head. Work is a necessary evil. Or... I work for the weekends. I didn't come up with that. That's a bumper sticker. Same with the next one. A bad day fishing is better than a good day working. Um, that reflects the attitude in our culture. And also, what has traditionally been known as the Christian work ethic, frankly, is now considered racist and part of whiteness, and I'll let you look into that on your own, but it's true. And then these attitudes have given way to government policies that undermine work. So just for example, right now in our country, there are 8.4 million people unemployed officially that the government tracks, but there are 10.1 million job openings, and that, that's a record. We've never had that many job openings. So there's more job openings by quite a bit than there are unemployed. So if everyone, if all those job openings matched an unemployed person, we'd have 0% unemployment, but that's not the way it is. And the National Federation of Independent Business did a uh, study that just came out at the end of August, and they say 50%, 50% of all small business owners reported job openings they could not fill in the current period, a record high reading according to their monthly jobs report. The number of unfulfilled job openings has remained far above the 48-year historical average of, of 22%. So that's their average. Small businesses say uh, they have job openings they can't fill, and now instead of 22%, it's, it's 50%. And um, I wouldn't be the first one to suggest that maybe government policy is at least contributing to that mismatch, that it's actually more profitable not to work these days than it is to go and find a job. Um, but why does that matter to us as Christians, not just as people who are interested in public policy and who care for the welfare of our country, but as Christians? So today we're going to have a refresher course on a biblical perspective on work. So this is a biblical perspective, not just a political um, opinion piece. So you'll, can, you can follow along in your, your outlines, in your bulletin. 
there's uh, seven points. And the first one is that man was created for work. Man was created for work. And uh, for that, we'll look together in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. And here, in the story of the beginning of all things, chapter 1 is a summary of God's creation of the heaven and the earth, heavens and the earth. And then in chapter 2, the human author Moses goes back and provides some details concerning the creation of man uh, that the first man was Adam, and then the first woman was Eve. She was created by the power of God from the body of Adam. But notice what the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And what's important for us to note now is that this is in chapter 2, pre-fall. The fall happens in chapter 3. And um, when the fall occurs, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God cursed them and cursed all of creation, he cursed work as well. Uh, cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. But work did not begin in chapter 3. Work began in chapter 2. Work is part of the created order. The fall changed work. It, it cursed work. It did not create work. Victor Hamilton, writing in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament, had this to say. Physical labor is not a consequence of sin. Work enters the picture before sin does, and if man had never sinned, he still would be working. Eden certainly is not a paradise in which man passes his time in idyllic and uninterrupted bliss with absolutely no demands on his daily schedule. And that's absolutely the case. God created uh, Adam and Eve as his helpmate uh, to work and to keep the garden, to work in paradise. So man was created for work. It's part, of, part of our identity is creatures created in the image of God, who, by the way, himself also works. And that's our next point. God works. God works. So let's look over in the next book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments passage. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, we see the fourth commandment, the commandment that uh, sets before us the responsibility to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, verse 8. And then notice what follows, starting in verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And what I would point out to you for today's purposes is that um, the commandment in verse 9, six days you shall labor, and do all your work, that's because of what the Lord did in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In other words, the, God's activity of creation in verse 11 is called work. 
labor in verse 9. God worked, God labored in creation, therefore his image bearers are to work. They are to labor. God works, in other words. And God has not stopped working. God rested from his work of creation, but God has not absolutely stopped all working. In John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what God is doing right now. God is working all things in existence, all things in the universe, all things in heaven, all things on the earth, all things in your life. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works. And Jesus says, and I have been working as well, in John 5 and verse 17. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says, that God's Son, whom God has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is one thing that Jesus continues to do today. Jesus, the Son of God, is upholding all things by the word of his power. So God works. God is very busy. There's a lot of things involved in upholding all things by the word of his power. Lots of things are included in upholding all things in the universe. Never makes God tired. God never runs out of energy because he's omnipotent. But nevertheless, God is very busy. God is the God who works. And that's why mankind, both males and females, are called to work, to reflect God's image. So point number three in our refresher course is that work produces wealth, laziness produces poverty. Work produces wealth, laziness produces poverty. And if you think about it, this flows from what we've already seen. We've been called to work as God's uh, image bearers. God works, the God who created the world and everything in it. Well, this is how God's world that he created works. Pardon the pun. That work produces wealth, and laziness produces poverty. And before we look at the scriptures, I would just like to remind you of the, the exact opposite of this point of view. The exact opposite of this point of view is Marxism. Karl Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, uh, wrote the famous slogan, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. That's the philosophy of Marxism. And so, according to Marxism, everyone is supposed to work according to your ability. But you don't get paid, you don't earn, you don't accumulate wealth according to your work, according to your effort, according to your industriousness, according to your risk-taking. No, you get paid according to your need. And of course, who determines your need in Marxism? The state, the government determines your need, and therefore the government determines your income. How much money you make in Marxism is determined by the government according to the government's determination of your need. And like I said, this is against God's word. So here are some example passages. And th these are Proverbs. So 
Proverbs are um, wisdom sayings. They're, they're not promises, but basically they're uh, um, general statements of how things work in God's world because there are exceptions, exceptions for sure. But in Proverbs 10 and verse 4 and 22, for example, a slack hand, a, a lazy hand, causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. A lot of people in the rhetoric, especially in political circles, make it sound as if to be rich in and of itself is sinful. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that it's a legitimate thing to work hard, to save money, to be industrious, and then to invest wisely, to sacrifice, and then, because of those efforts, to get rich. And the Bible says that God blesses in that way, and he adds no sorrow with it. You don't have to feel guilty because God has blessed you with the means to have some wealth. Some of the most famous people in the Bible were wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. And those men were sinners. They had their problems. They weren't perfect. But it wasn't their wealth in and of itself that made them sinful. Proverbs 13 and verse 4 the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And I think that we all would agree that we see this every day in our world. And again, these are we're being categorical here. There are definitely exceptions. But I've, I've seen people, I've talked to people, I've heard from people who want what somebody else has. And what somebody else has was the result of that person working hard and saving and then buying from the, uh, uh, their, the resources of their wealth but then a sluggard, someone who's lazy, someone who refuses to work, someone who refuses to do what's required in order to gain wealth, they, they crave the same kinds of goods, the same kinds of treasures, but they get nothing because they're not willing to work. That's the mentality that Proverbs 13 and verse 4 is addressing. And then Proverbs 21 and verse 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. And notice that the language is specific. His hands refuse to labor. It's not that his hands cannot labor, because he's physically handicapped, or he can't labor because try as he might, he cannot find a job or something of that nature. No, his hands refuse to labor. And then that leads to his desire killing him because he wants stuff, can't get it, can't afford it. And this is reflected in New Testament church life. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. <coughs> 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 
the Apostle Paul wrote to this local church of believers. <coughs> For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, and again, the qualification is the same as what we saw in Proverbs 21 and verse 25. It's not that the person is unable to work because of limitations on the part of the person or because there's no jobs available, try as he might. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And the reason why Paul wrote that is because the church was involved in benevolence. The, the church was involved of making sure that people within the church were not starving. They were providing bread. They were providing food. But the problem was there were a bunch of people who were convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to return today or next week or next month. And because of that, they quit their jobs. And then, as if that wasn't enough, they expected the church to support them. And the church, to some extent, was trying to support them. And that's why Paul corrected the activity of the church here. That the church is not supposed to give benevolence to all askers without qualification. That the church is allowed and even required to do a little bit of background investigation and to just find out, well, are you willing to work? And if the person is not willing to work, then the natural consequence is, well, you're supposed to feel hungry. And that is from the Apostle of Grace, the Apostle Paul. And he goes on, for we hear, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's our responsibility to support ourselves and those in our household and to not depend on someone else. That's, that's Bible. We're supposed to keep ourselves busy. And when we keep ourselves busy through working, it has the natural consequence of uh, keeping us out of activities that we shouldn't get involved in. And by the way, uh, at this point, I think it's appropriate to talk about retirement. This, the Bible does not say that we should go on with our careers, our uh, jobs, until we die. Therefore, retirement is a sin. The Bible doesn't actually say that, and I don't think that's true. First of all, people who retire, they do retire because they worked so hard and they were able to save up money to enable them to support themselves in retirement. And then retired people that I know of still go on working. They're not working to make a living per se, but they've, they've shifted their busyness from their career to something else. And that's, that's legitimate. What, what the Bible does say is that we're, we're not called to just coast, coast our way into heaven. But um, wherever we find ourselves and whatever situation we find ourselves in, there are always things that we can do. There are things that we can do to make the world a better place to improve our own situation, to serve others, to be involved in the kingdom of God, perhaps. There's always a window to clean or dishes to do or whatever. You, you, you get the point. And so retirement basically is a transition 
from a job that we basically are expected to be there and we earn a salary, we earn a wage, to a situation where maybe we don't have a boss anymore, but we're still busy doing other things. But what I wanted you to see from these Proverbs and from Second Thessalonians chapter 3 is this general rule that work produces wealth, laziness produces poverty. And then here I will make a, um, it could be construed as a political remark, but um, we, we, we should be against policies, government policies, that go against God's word. We, as Christians, we should be against laws that recognize marriage as being between members of the same sex. We, we should be against laws that seem to go out of their way to protect LGBTQ activity and expression and, and on and on. We should be against public policy that undermines the family. But we should also be against public policy that undermines the principle laid out from our creator that work produces wealth, laziness produces poverty. And I believe that um, our government, our public policy, is perpetuating unemployment and therefore perpetuating um, laziness and poverty. God intends there to be some connection between work and our bellies. That's according to the word of God. So much so that even churches are supposed to recognize that, that connection. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a, a safety net, but we shouldn't undermine what God has set up in terms of how his world works. All right, let's move on to point number four. Working is the opposite of stealing. Working is the opposite of stealing. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul is laying out responsibilities of Christians, those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. There's... Uh, Various responsibilities that Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, through 6. And here's one of them. Let the thief, what Paul envisions and what he was probably personally familiar with, was that in the church in Ephesus, among the converts, among the believers, were former thieves people who were saved from their sin, namely the sin of thievery, stealing, taking something that didn't belong to them. Let the thief no longer steal. By the way, this is simply what repentance is. When the Bible calls sinners to repentance... It calls people from their former sinful lifestyle to a completely different lifestyle, a lifestyle of walking with God, a lifestyle of pleasing God, a lifestyle of obedience to God. That's what repentance is. It's a turning from God, or from idols, I should say, to serve the living and true God. So, in the case of thieves, let the thief no longer steal. But Paul doesn't stop there. It's not enough to just not steal. Instead, former thieves should now pursue a positive duty. But rather, let him labor. Let the former thief go get a job doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's the positive responsibility 
honest work so that you can provide for yourself and your household and not be a burden on others. And beyond that, even have money to be able to give out of the generosity of your heart. That's the opposite of stealing. Working is the opposite of stealing. And so, if you think about it, the Robin Hood ethic, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, is actually stealing. If we want to tax the rich and set up systems such that people can learn and actually do honest work with their own hands so that they can have something to share with anyone in need, by all means. But just taking from the rich and giving to the poor, according to Ephesians 4 and verse 28, that's stealing. And that's not in accordance with God's, God's work ethic. Never mind the American work ethic, never mind the Protestant work ethic, and certainly never mind whiteness. God's work ethic is this. All right, number five. Christians glorify Christ in their work. Christians glorify Christ in their work. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we read, Slaves, or bondservants, but they were slaves. They weren't free. They weren't at liberty. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will uh, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will re receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. But look over in Colossians chapter 2, or 3. Colossians chapter 3. And notice verses 22 through 24. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then listen to verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. That's an amazing statement from the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying that even if you are a bondservant, and I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that no one here is an actual slave or a bondservant, like a lot of Paul's uh, hearers, readers in the first century were. We all, it, those of us who are employed, we could quit if we wanted to. We, I, I won't make any more political statements <laughs> to follow up on that, but we're free to leave our jobs. There's not going to be anyone chasing us down and beating us and putting us into jail if we do. We're, we're free but what Paul writes applies to slaves, to bondservants, as well as to us. We're in a better position than they were. And so what Paul writes, it could be argued, applies to us even more. And so those Christian bondservants were to look past their masters 
and see Jesus. That's not a defense of slavery by any means. It's not a justification for slavery by any means. But it's a way of enabling even slaves to do what they were called to do to the glory of Christ. To see Christ behind their situation. To see themselves not working just for their masters, not serving just their masters, but serving their ultimate master, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so how much more would this apply to us? In our jobs, in our callings, we need to see ourselves as serving the Lord Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer in um, the 1500s, was captivated by this teaching and turned the world in Europe and then ultimately beyond upside down through the doctrine of vocation. The doctrine of vocation means that no matter what our occupation is, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, EMT, engineer, doctor, cosmetologist, server in a restaurant, janitor, homemaker, teacher, principal, you name it, fill in the blanks. No matter what our calling is, it is holy, and we can do it to the glory of God, of course, so long as it's not sinful. You, you can't be a thief to the glory of God, for example. You must steal no more. But everything else that's not a violation of the word of God, everything else is a legitimate, uh, holy calling by which we can serve the Lord. Martin Luther wrote, How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in church and by works done therein? The whole world could abound with services to the Lord not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, field. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. That's Martin Luther. That's the doctrine of vocation. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord, not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. And I believe, and a lot of other thinkers, historians, economists believe that this realization is what led to the incredible wealth and prosperity that we have enjoyed and are still enjoying in our nation. It's the Protestant work ethic that there is nothing that's legitimate that cannot be done for the glory of God. So, Christians glorify Christ in their work. Six, we will work on the new earth. We will work on the new earth. In your bulletin, Isaiah 65, verses 21 through 22 is listed. Uh, and in Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah is discussing the new earth. And he says in those verses, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work 
of their hands. This is a prophetic, poetic picture of life in the new earth. And then if you fast forward to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, that also explicitly address life on the new earth. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, the apostle John wrote, no longer will there be anything accursed. And remember where we started. We started in the Garden of Eden. And we saw that in the Garden of Eden, Adam was created to be a worker. And then after the fall, work became cursed. Work came under God's curse because of human sin. Well, John says concerning life in the new earth, no longer will there be anything accursed, which means work will be relieved of the curse. And then John continues, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. How will we do that? Will life on the new earth be one eternal church service? Well, as wonderful as I know you think that that would be, that's not it. Just like we serve Christ now in whatever we do, in our work, in our labor, in our vocations, so we will serve Christ on the new earth Yes, in worship, yes, in fellowship, but also in meaningful, uncursed labor. Amen. And I believe that this is behind Christ's thinking when um, he uh, gave the parable of the faithful servant, Matthew 25 and verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And think about that. In the parable, the faithful servant had been set over areas of responsibility in which he excelled. He worked. He labored. He was diligent. And therefore, his reward is, I will set you over much. The reward was not, okay, now you can lay in your hammock in this corner of the new earth and take a never-ending nap or whatever. No, I will set you over much. And so the idea is, that even on the new earth, which is heaven on earth, by the way, there will be work, there will be responsibilities, and there will be people who will be given more responsibility. There will be people in charge. But what makes work on the new earth so much different, almost incomprehensible compared to what we're familiar with now is the absence of sin. Listen to Randy Alcorn. Um, th there's been several books that I have read in my Christian life that I say were really life transforming. And Randy Alcorn's book on heaven was one of them. I heartily recommend it. Get Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn wrote, work in heaven won't be frustrating or fruitless. Instead, it will involve lasting accomplishment, unhindered by decay and fatigue, enhanced by unlimited resources. Our best work days on the present earth, those days when everything turns out better than we planned, when we get everything done on time, and when everyone on the team pulls together and enjoys one another, are just a small foretaste of the joy our work will bring us on the new earth. Amen. And Henry Morris, who wrote 
uh, famous commentary on the book of Genesis, Henry Morris um, did a little bit of speculation and he, and he speculated. Look at these vast worlds and galaxies and um, solar systems that God has created. Imagine if, imagine if the whole universe will be our Garden of Eden. And so instead of keeping and tilling some garden on, in some corner of the earth, what, what if God calls us and gives us the ability to go wherever, wherever we want to in all of creation and tend it and till it and develop it? And Henry Morris says, we, we, we can only imagine, and of course that's, that's true. The point is that we will work on the new earth. We will work in the new creation. It's not something that only lasts during this life. And if that makes you go, ugh, what a burden, then there's two things that you should do. Either go back and calibrate, reorient your view of work based on what God says in his word, or maybe you're in the wrong job. Maybe you're in the wrong profession, the wrong career, and you need to make a change so that you can put your gifts and talents to better use and so that there could be joy and fulfillment in what you do so that you can bring more glory to God. But make no mistake about it, we will work on the new earth. And then seventh and finally, Christ's work, not ours, saves us. Christ's work, not ours, saves us. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3 and verse 29, or 28, excuse me, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The teaching of the Bible is that because of our sinful nature, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to take away our sin, to measure up to the righteousness of God. We're like King Midas in reverse. Remember the Midas touch? Whatever King Midas touched turned to gold. Whatever we touch gets polluted by sin. So much so that even our supposed righteousnesses are like filthy rags in God's sight. So work as much as you will, you will never work your way into God's favor. On the other hand, Christ has done it all. Christ has come into the world, sinners to save. And what Christ did in order to save sinners like you and like me is work. It's Christ's work of redemption. It took activity. It took labor. He, he came into this world as a man. He came from heaven to the earth. He suffered. He suffered in many ways throughout his life, but he ultimately suffered and died a horrific death on a cross on a hill called Calvary. And there he endured the wrath of God. He endured pain and suffering at the hands of men, but he endured even more than that, the anger, judgment, from God directed against our sin, concentrated and directed against Jesus and our place. That took work. He endured it. But then Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead for our justification. And the Bible says 
that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he rested from his work of redemption. So Jesus did all of this, and we're just giving you highlights from what the Bible describes. Jesus undertook an amazing, indescribable work of redemption in order to redeem otherwise hopeless, helpless, lost sinners like you and me. And so as we think about labor and work, let's have a biblical perspective for sure. But let's even go beyond that and see the gospel and see the cross and the empty tomb and Jesus enthroned in heaven as the ultimate fulfillment of any work that anyone could ever imagine in this life. And so come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. Turn from your sins. Turn to him and be saved today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing world that you have created. And even though it's cursed by sin, it's still an amazing place. This is my Father's world. We thank you for what you have revealed in your word about how your world works. And I pray, Lord, that we would pay attention and give priority to what your word says about the world rather than what fallen men say. And I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us in this place, no matter what our respective calling might be. Help us to do it all to the glory of God. Help us in whatever we do to serve the Lord Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would work the great work of salvation in souls in our midst today. We pray that your word would not return to you void, but that it would accomplish the work for which you sent it. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.